Praise God. Today, I'm excited uh, to introduce our, our speaker. He's not a guest speaker. He's a home speaker. You're going to get used to hearing him more and more often. Uh, ben has been a part of our church since he was 11. He's 11 years old. The Bossback family came, and they have been a tremendous blessing uh, to us and to the church. Um, his parents are elders here in the church and have walked through a number of different difficult situations and journeys and have helped in the leadership of the church. And, and Ben has grown up under great spiritual leadership. Um, after, after high school, he went to International or Summit International School of Ministry and was taught under some phenomenal pastors, phenomenal professors and, and leaders. Uh, for those of you who may not know, Summit is Times Square Church's Bible School. And so this past spring, he graduated, and I knew uh, we, we could not let Ben go, so we brought Ben on staff. He's been on staff now with us for a few months, and he is a staff pastor here overseeing discipleship. Some of you have started his class on Tuesday nights, doing a fantastic job, but this morning, I'm encouraged and excited to uh, have and introduce Ben, Pastor Ben Bossback. Come on, welcome him as he comes. Well, good morning. Thank you, Pastor Doug, um, just for this opportunity and for being my pastor and my mentor and for leading this church. We all appreciate you and Charlotte, and we love you guys, so thank you. Um, good morning, church. Um, as Pastor Doug said, my name is Ben, um, and this morning, uh, I really want to talk about a topic that I feel is a very good break um, in what we have been discussing as practical Christianity or practical Christian living. We've talked about the tongue and controlling the tongue. We've talked about money and submitting our money um, unto the Lord. And today we're going to really talk about the question that I feel is vital um, to living Christianity practically. And that is, is Jesus Lord? Because if Jesus is not Lord, then, then scripture on the tongue and scripture on our finances really just becomes good advice. And it really just becomes good suggestions. And the word of God is just treated as like a, it's, just, it's, a, it's a life guide or it's like a PDF file that you pull up online or it's like a YouTube video that you look up when you don't know what to do. It's not treated as the holy word of God that is to be submitted to and God is seen as lesser and we are seen as really God of our own life. It's idolatry in the basic sense if Jesus is not Lord of our life. So today, I want to address some misconceptions about who Jesus is. Um, if you have your Bibles, I certainly hope you've brought your Bible or you have an online resource to look at that. We're going to look at John chapter 1. We're going to look at John chapter 1, and if you could just hold there for a second while I go over some, some misconceptions about who Jesus is, because there are opinions everywhere about who Jesus is. Who he was as a man, was he God, was he not God, who was he? Was he a phantom, just a spirit, who was he? And I'm going to name drop some organizations and some people groups um, who have certain thoughts on who Jesus is. I want to do my best to be as faithful and as accurate to what they actually believe. And if any of you have been a part or are currently a part um, of these groups, I really want to speak with as much respect and love and truthfulness um, to those as well, uh, to those organizations, but respectfully disagreeing biblically, historically, scientifically, and a lot of other reasons for disagreement. But first, um, Mormonism, Mormons, it's the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Some of you have maybe ran into them or you've seen them on the street or you've seen videos. Mormons believe essentially that Jesus possessed certain divine attributes, but he himself was not God. Or Jesus was a creation of Father God. Um, and Brigham Young, some of you have heard of Brigham Young University. Brigham Young was an early patriarch of Mormonism. He taught in his Journal of Discourses in Volume 8, pretty sure it was on page 115. He said that Jesus was begotten as we are begotten. Just as man is begotten, Jesus is begotten. So in other words, it means that Father God had sexual relations with Mary, possibly that's one interpretation that people say, and produce Jesus. Now, this isn't the official position of the church online, but this is what has been taught throughout the years. But the official position is that Jesus possessed 
certain divine attributes, but he himself was not God. This is a heresy called Arianism or semi-Arianism. Arianism or semi-Arianism, that Jesus possessed attributes, but he was not God. So Muslims from the religion Islam, they say that Jesus was a great man, that he was even a prophet, far inferior to the, their lead prophet, Prophet Muhammad. Jesus was the Messiah of Israel. They will say, I was at a mosque this past fall, and, and they will say, Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. Look, he says he's the lost shepherd of Israel. So they'll use the scripture to say that he is the lost shepherd of Israel, he's the Messiah, but they say that he did not die on the cross, he certainly was not God, he certainly is not Lord, Lord overall. Jewish people say that, some people say in, in Judaism that Jesus was a good man, good teacher. Others, like Ben Shapiro, some of you have probably watched some of his stuff, especially if you're a conservative, you're probably like, man, Ben Shapiro's my guy. Um, ben Shapiro says, like, he was just a revolutionary, rebellious guy who got what he had coming to him by the Romans. He rebelled against the Roman government, got what he had coming to him. Jehovah's Witnesses, um, some of you also probably have seen them around here, Kingdom Halls, that's a Jehovah's Witness uh, assembly. They don't call it a church. They say that Jesus was Michael the Archangel. And they believe that in eternity past, Jesus was Michael the Archangel. He was born of God the Father, Jehovah, firstborn creation of Jehovah. The World Mission Society Church of God, I've had encounters with them on the street. Pastor Doug just had one like last week with these people. It's a very growing, predominant cult group. It started by An Sung Hong out of uh, Korea. They believe that An Sung Hong was the second coming of Christ. He's the Holy Spirit today. Ju Chil Kim, his mistress, started this World Mission Society. She believes that she is Mother God. So there is this whole Mother God theory that is becoming increasingly popular and the cult group is following, especially out west, but it's really growing here in the Midwest as well. So there's all kinds of positions and there's all kinds of belief of who Jesus is. And even amongst Christianity, there's some real debate about who Jesus actually is. And that's why it's so important for us to talk about who he actually is. Is he God in the flesh? Is he Lord over all creation? Is he savior of the world, the only way to heaven? That's another common topic. How can we get to heaven? Well, all roads lead to heaven. Is that true biblically? But more importantly, the question we're gonna answer today is who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? What does the Bible say about Jesus? So let's pray before we read. Father, thank you so much, God, that we don't have to really ask this question um, and really wonder because, God, you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And God, I thank you that we can trust your word, Lord, that it is a living and active word. God, I thank you that your word comforts us, that it guides us and it leads us. Lord, I thank you that you have not left us alone. Lord, you have sent the Holy Spirit to be our helper and our teacher, our convictor. God, I pray today that as we study who you are, God, I pray that people would come to know the true resurrected and living Christ. God, I pray today that if there are, if there are hearts in this room, God, who have not bent their knee to you as Lord, God, I pray that the Holy Spirit would open their eyes and open their hearts, God, to the glory and the beauty of your son, Jesus. Lord, I thank you today, God, for the people who are saved um, by Christ, Lord, and I pray that if there's areas in our life where we haven't um, bent our knee to you as Lord, that we would do that, and you promise to be faithful and just to forgive us and walk with us, God. So we love you, and we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So John chapter 1. John chapter 1 is a super important chapter, kind of a little precursor to John. Um, it was the last of four Gospels written. John wrote his Gospels last uh, Mark was the first, um, and John wrote his gospel in the midst of great heretical attack on the church. There's all kinds of heresy that were popping up. He specifically wrote his epistles more when it was really heavy, but essentially what was happening is John was hearing and seeing all of these people who were claiming to know the man, the God-man that he walked with and lived with for three years. And he was a little upset that people were saying some stuff that wasn't true. It'd be kind of like if you had a loved one who maybe is alive or maybe they've passed and you know them to have brown hair, they have blue eyes, they are tall, they're not short, they, they have a nice personality, they're really funny, you know the sound of their laugh, the smell, 
of, the, of, the, of their presence. You, you just know them. And people in town say that, no, they don't have brown hair. They had blonde hair. Or they had brown eyes, not blue eyes. Or, no, they were really short. You'd be like, no, they weren't. So you'd want to defend them and tell them, like, no, that's not true. Like, this is actually what's true. That's basically what John was doing. John grabbed his pen and he said, all right, you guys think you have all this figured out about Jesus. I'm going to write because I lived with him. I walked with him. I put my head on his breast. I know who Jesus is, and I'm going to write to you about who he is. So in verse 1, we're going to start there, and we're going to read from verse 1 through 14. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. There was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own. His own did not receive him. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So John starts off with something that's really familiar. First three words, where'd they come from? Genesis. John starts off with in the beginning. He was writing to Jewish, he was writing to Jewish people. He was also writing to the Greeks. And so John is using language that would have really perked the ears up of Jewish listeners. He takes it all the way back to creation, really before creation began to make a point very known in the first sentence of his gospel that Jesus is eternal. What he's saying here is, he's saying in the beginning was the word, the word in Greek, it's called logos. And some of you are thinking, no, it's logos. Well, I have to say logos because, you know, philosophy professor says, well, it's an omnicron, not an omega letter. So you got to say logos. Anyway, Jesus is the logos. The Greeks loved this term. Greek philosophy, logos was everything to them. And really what it meant is it meant like divine reason. It, everything exists, um, everything that exists really pre-existed because the thought came first. So it's really kind of high and intellectual. You got to think about it. But John is saying here, Jesus is eternal. He was in the beginning. He was the word, the word who represents Jesus, the divine expression of God. He was with God and the word Jesus was God which is very interesting. We just said earlier, Jesus is, is he's not God. He's not God. He's just man who possessed certain divine attributes. He was born of God. So what do we do with verses one, verse two? He was in the beginning with God. It's very clear. John is saying that Jesus goes all the way back to Genesis before it even began and that he's eternal. He's always existed. He didn't, he wasn't created. He didn't just, he wasn't made somehow. No, Jesus is eternal. He is God. And you can get really kind of into the Greek there where we talk about was. We think was like was past tense. Like did Jesus cease to be being God? And it's really interesting and I won't get too much into it today. But as you go and you look through, John is using terms that say like essentially it would read if it was read literal. It would be like in the beginning. It was like in the beginning. It's like is the word and the word was and is with God and the word was and will always be God. It's really kind of interesting but the English translation gets a little difficult. Regardless, Jesus is eternal. Verse three, what does this mean? All things were made through him and without him, nothing was made that was made. So John is saying one, okay, we got Jesus is God and he's the word of God. Some of you are saying like, well, I thought the Bible was the word of God. How can Jesus be the word of God? And also the Bible be the word of God. It's complex, but simply to, to summarize it, it's the Bible is God's revelation 
transcribed while Jesus is the revelation of God personified. So we see that God's word is written. It's God's revelation, the way that he reveals himself to man. That's what's written. Jesus is God's exact representation in person. Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. I was supposed to have a, uh, a visual for you guys to see up here today, and I didn't get it to Nick. That's my rookie mistake. I forgot to send him the Canva link. But anyway, essentially, there's a great illustration that Greg Kukul, he's a, uh, he's a famous apologist, and he uses this in one of his books. I believe it's called Tactics. It's a great book on how to share your faith as a Christian. But it's a great resource to really to get you to think about John 1-3 with Jehovah's Witnesses and with Mormons. And essentially, if you have notes, I can try to explain it the best I can. But essentially, he creates a box. And then in that box, he draws a straight line down the middle and then a T at the top for two titles of those sides. On one side, he puts all things that never came into being, which most people would agree that that's God. God never came into being. He, he existed before time began. God is eternal, right? Most people would agree with that. And then in the next box, you say, okay, all things that came into being. And they would say, well, that's probably like all created things, plants, animals, trees, the, the earth, the universes, all created things. So you have two boxes. You have all things that never came into being, that's God. All things that never came in, or all things that came into being or were existed, those are, are all created things. Now, John 1.3 says that all things were made through him, talking about Jesus, and without Jesus, nothing was made that was made. And if you have like a quarter or a nickel or something to represent Jesus, you say, okay, now you hand it to him, you say, okay, take this, and on what side would you put the coin that represents Jesus, according to John 1.3? Naturally, they're going to want to put it on the one side that says all things that came into being, those all created things. But John 1.3 says that all things were created through Jesus and without him, there would be nothing. So if he can't go on one side, then he has to go on the other side. And the only other side, the only other option is Jesus being creator. It's Jesus being God, which is our second point. Verse 4 and 5, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. John said light, I don't know how many times. Did anybody count? I think there's like seven or eight times. John uses light and life, and he does it all throughout his gospels and all throughout, all throughout his epistles in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. There are two contrastive themes that run throughout his gospels. There's darkness and light, but life and light here are supposed to be shared qualities. He's saying that in Jesus is life and light. Not only life and light at creation and Jesus' part as the eternal God who was in creation, but also the spiritual light and eternal life that only salvation in Jesus provides. Darkness, which he talks about here, shining in the darkness, darkness often represents, in, the, in scripture, it represents impurity, error, or false doctrine. It can represent sin, it represents Satan, and it represents the spiritual darkness that Satan promotes and attacks with. And John is saying here, it's like, just as the sun, like an analogy to maybe make it a little more simpler is, just as the sun provides light and life to the earth, so too does Jesus Christ provide light and life to all who repent and believe in him. Without him, it would be almost like if you had, if you had like a flower and you give it water and you give it good soil, and then you just put it in a closet. The closet kind of represents like the darkness of sin, a, a life apart from Christ. There's going to be a little growth, but eventually there's going to be a withering, and then there's going to be a death, a spiritual death. But with Christ, with the Son, we find growth, we find spiritual health, we find spiritual freedom. Verse 5, John's saying that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot comprehend it. How many of you know that's true? If you're in a dark room, and there's just a little bit of light, just a, a flame, you know that that light really can't be shut out by darkness. It's just there. And so if we see that Jesus is life and he is light, the darkness cannot comprehend it or sometimes say overcome it. How can we as Christians be more afraid of Satan than we are of God? 
Sometimes some of us live with more fear of Satan and demons than we do with the fear of the Lord. And that's a, and that's a real problem. He's a holy and a living God. Christ is more than just a three-letter slogan of Jesus loves you. He is the consuming fire. He is coming back. He's heaven's warrior. He's coming back with a sword out of his mouth and tattooed on his side. This is the one who stirs the wrath of God. Like He is the holy and living God. Walking in fear of him, the Bible says, is the beginning of wisdom. Darkness cannot overcome him. It cannot overcome the power of the Holy Spirit. Colossians says that Jesus on the cross, he disarmed the rulers and powers and authority. He disarmed Satan. He took his guns and he took all of his ammo. He's got nothing left. So that's important for the Christian to know, and that's what John wanted to say is that Jesus is light. He's life. Apart from him, there is no life and light. Apart from him, there is only darkness, only deadness, and a road that leads to judgment and ultimately hell, cut off from God forever. Verse 6. There was a man sent from John whose, whose name was John. It's not himself. He's talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a witness. It says in verse 7, this man came for a witness or as a witness to bear witness about the light. John is saying that John the Baptist came to evangelize about Jesus, the Messiah who was to come. John was like the agent or instrument or vehicle of faith, and Jesus is the object of that saving faith. The similar job that John had is a similar job that we have today. We're the delivery driver. Jesus is the object of what we're delivering to the people. And that's our calling, and we'll get into that a little bit later. Verse 11, we're going to skip ahead, and we're going to look at what John's saying in verse 11. Start there. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. His own did not receive him, but as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Verse 11, Jesus has said that he came to his own people. He came to the nation of Israel He came for his own creation, the same people. We already established that Jesus is eternal, that he's God. We said that he's Lord over all because he's creator. So he came to his own creation, and it says that he was rejected. He came to his own, his own did not receive him, the rejection. I've heard it put like this when it comes to creation. Pastor Carter Conlon told me one time, he's like, if you think about it like this, it really makes sense about the heart of God when it comes to he didn't need to create us. He was perfectly happy within, his, within himself, but he wanted to create us. We talked about this on Tuesday. Now, there's, there's people in the class, we know what that word means, right? It's, it's, a say, it's God's aseity. It's existence within himself. He didn't need us, but he created us out of desire and love. But the imagery is that it's a young couple. They go to get their ultrasound, and they're expecting a child. And the doctor says, hey, everything looks great. We're on time for delivery. Like, everything looks great. But there's only one problem. When that child grows up, 18 years old, let's say, they are going to kill you both. Do you still want to have the child? That's essentially like what was happening with God. He's he's looking at his creation. He's saying, okay, well, I know I'm going to create them, but I know they're going to rebel against me. I know that they're going to reject me, and I'm going to be faithful to them, and I'm going to be loyal to them, but they're going to reject me. But nevertheless, the lamb, Jesus, is going to be slain before the foundations of the world. That Jesus is going to be sent, and even though he's going to be rejected, the story's not going to end. And John says the story doesn't end because look in verse 12. But as many as did receive him, he gave them the right to become children of God. John really wants his listeners to understand the nature of salvation and the spirit of adoption that is so key to salvation. The reality is, and, and John makes this clear all throughout his gospel and so do the rest of the scriptures, but the reality is, is like we're foreigners. Some of us are like, no, I'm American. No, it's like, no, we're not American and we're not from a different countries. We are foreigners living in a land apart from Christ. If we're not saved from Christ, we are alienated, the Bible says, from God. That we're children who are deserving of the wrath of God because we are sinners and God is perfect and God is holy. But what's amazing is that even though we can be in a spiritually dead and dark state on a road that leads to judgment, and how God has never been afraid of the dark, why? Because he is light and life. 
Jesus has never been scared to reach into the dark places of our hearts, of our lives, and bring forth love and light and life. He wasn't at creation, and he certainly isn't now. Some of you don't maybe understand the spirit of adoption because you have been adopted. Some of you also maybe have negative implications or negative thought process that come with thinking about being adopted. Why? Because some of us had had parents, fathers, or mothers walk out on us as kids. Maybe they literally left. They were physically abusive or caused a lot of trauma. Maybe they were present in the home, but sometimes being present in the home doesn't always mean actually being present in our lives. But John is saying that to those who did receive him by faith, in the second part of verse 12, to those who believe in Jesus' name, not just Jesus, because we know that there are misconceptions about Jesus, but Jesus as Lord, as God, as creator overall, to those who do believe in Jesus, you're given the best adoption papers you could ever imagine. Ones that are signed with the blood of Christ, that are covenantally bound to you and loyal to you, promised to fill you with the Holy Spirit, with God's presence himself living inside of you. You've been given a spirit and a nature of adoption that says, you're now my son, you're now my daughter. Some of you have been given titles like no good. And many been told like, you're just no good. You're not smart. You really don't have much potential. You've been kind of just ostracized. You've been cast out by your own parents maybe. But God says, no, you're my son, you're my daughter, you're mine. And so it's so key to recognize that John is trying to say that even though we have been brought, or we've been far off, Ephesians says that we can be brought near by the blood of Jesus. Verse 13 says, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of man, nor of the will of, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To those who believe in his name, salvation isn't, we don't get the credit for it. That's what John is trying to say in verse 13. It's, it's a work of God. It's a miraculous work of God. It's the ultimate sign of God's grace. We didn't seek Christ or want him naturally, but rather he sought us. He awakened by the power of the Holy Spirit, our eyes and our hearts to the beauty of the gospel. And he deserves all glory for the work that he's done in those who say that they are believers in Jesus Christ. Verse 14, what, is, what does this mean? The word became flesh and he dwelt among us. Now, to Jewish listeners, they would say, like, there's no way. God is too big. God would never humble himself and become flesh. To the Greeks, they would say, well, this doesn't really make any sense because they thought, like, Zeus and Hercules and all these people, they kind of, like, just were, like, like supermen. So what, like, what is John trying to say? The word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the Logos. Jesus is the word who became flesh. He stepped out of glory in all of his glory and all of his divinity, and he added on a human nature. Why? One, it was the plan of redemption, but two, it was to, to become like us, to be the sacrifice fit for sin. How many of you know that sin or um, breaking the law have consequences? And a good judge wouldn't just let a murderer walk free because that would be a, a bad judge. And the reality is that all of us are murderers. Why? Because all of us have had hate in our heart towards a brother. How many of you can say, like, yeah, probably I've had hate towards people. Um, well, well, Jesus says that you're a murderer. That's how extreme he takes it. It's, it's metaphorical, but it's extreme. You're a murderer. If you're lust after a woman, you're an adulterer. Like, there's a seriousness behind the sin, but that's why Jesus came as the word to us, to dwell among us. And the second half is really interesting. John says, we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. If you flip in your Bibles to Exodus 33, verse 18, 19, and 20, I'll read that just really quickly because Moses says the same thing about God showing his glory. John says, we beheld God's glory, but Moses says in verse 18, he says, please show me your glory. And God says in verse 20, he says, 
you cannot see my face, Moses, for no man shall see me and live. God's glory was veiled, but John said that we beheld his glory. So how does that happen? What is he actually saying there? In the Old Testament, the temple, there was a, there was a veil. There was a veil. That's why God said, you can't see me and live. Essentially, the temple was a place to go and make sacrifice for sin. It was a place to go into the presence of God. The high priest would go in there, and there was a veil to guard humans from God's glory. Jesus here is being displayed as the one who is being beheld. In John chapter 2, this is really how it happens, and this is what John is trying to say. In John chapter 2, verse 18... Starts in 18. This is really how it happens. So the Jews answered, they're talking to Jesus, and they said to him, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Was he talking about his body? No. Look at verse 20 and 21. The Jews said to him, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. You'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus has said. So how did we behold uh, God's glory? It's because of Jesus' work on the cross. It's because of his death on the cross and and his resurrection from the dead. Jesus is saying in John chapter 2 that I am the temple, that I am this bridge between deity and humanity, that I am the great sacrifice for sin, that because of my death and because of my resurrection, the Bible says that the veil that guarded God's presence from people is now torn from top to bottom. There is no longer a guard that veils people from being able to go into the presence of God. Jesus is saying that I'm the one who is the temple. I tear down the veil, and now through me and through faith in me, you can go right in and see the glory and beauty and majesty of God. No longer do you walk in and you fall dead because no man can stand in his presence. Then it happened in the Old Testament. If they profaned the glory of God, they could be and would be struck dead. But now, Jesus is, this is a glorious revelation, especially for Jewish believers in that day. They would have really understand, wait a minute, I can't behold God's glory because of the veil. But now he's saying that that veil is going to be destroyed, and I can go right in and see God face to face through faith in Jesus, through intimate prayer with God through reading the inspired word of God and ultimately through the Holy Spirit who is now living inside of believers, now calling us the temple of God. I mean, when you think about that, the temple was so sacred and so holy and we are scarred up, messed up, tattooed with sin and Christ has now said, no, that's gonna be, all, that's gonna be where I reside now. It's, a, it's the most beautiful and miraculous miracle in all of scripture. It's the ultimate act of grace, Jesus coming to step down into humanity. John 1:14, the last point says Jesus is God in the flesh. So now that we've established that Jesus is God, he is eternal, he was there before the world began. We saw that in verses like 1 through 3. Jesus is Lord over all. We did that with the quarter, right? We said Jesus must be God. Jesus is life and light, and verse 14 tells us that he is God in the flesh, full of grace and truth. So there's a couple questions that we can take out of this to kind of begin to apply it to our lives. We talked about what John was saying and what it meant, but now we need to ask, well, how does this apply to us, and what does it mean for Christians? So there's a couple questions that I'm going to ask I'm going to ask you to just be extremely honest with with God himself, not with me or with people around, just with God as I ask some of these questions. So question number one, do you believe that Jesus is Lord? 
not a good man or a good teacher or you believe in him because you were born in Indiana and you've been raised in the Midwest and everybody's a Christian, but do you believe that Jesus is actually Lord over all men but over your life? Do you submit to him as Lord? Submission is so key to understanding and walking with God. Why? Because belief isn't enough. Belief in Jesus isn't enough. James says that even the demons believe, but they don't submit to him as Lord. So what makes us different than demons? It's submission. I've been, recently, the past couple months, I've been uh, involved in, in training in jiu-jitsu. Some of you guys may know that, some of you may not. I've loved it, it's been great, but the whole goal of jiu-jitsu or submission grappling or wrestling grappling, whatever you want to call it, is to submit or subdue an opponent in as quick amount of time, exerting the least amount of energy possible. There's all kinds of chokes and there's all kinds of submissions you can do in order for people to tap out. That's the sign. You either have two options. You either tap out or you go to sleep. That's really the options. Or something breaks. So there's your options. And it's kind of very similar with Christ. He's, he's presented himself and there's, there's a couple options. You can submit to him as Lord or you can go to sleep. The sleep is a spiritual death. It's a spiritual sleep. It's, and the Bible describes spiritual death as judgment and hell, being separated from God for eternity as punishment for not tapping out, for not submitting to Jesus as Lord and loving Christ above all. He is our supreme treasure. He is the pearl of great price. He is the love of our life. Is Jesus Lord? Not just do you believe in Jesus, but is Jesus Lord? Lord. Trying to live without Jesus being Lord and just accepting him as a mere man or having divine attributes, it's really a counterfeit gospel. It's like trying to purchase with counterfeit cash. It doesn't work. You might get by once, but eventually the bill gets held up to the light, you get caught, and there's some severe punishment. And living with another gospel is a counterfeit gospel. And you know what Paul says about another Jesus or another gospel? In Galatians, he says that that person who preaches another Jesus or believing in another Jesus means that they are to be accursed. It's really interesting to me how the Book of Mormon on the first page starts off with another testament of Jesus Christ. One of their main claims is that they have greater testaments or newer testaments about who Jesus is through Joseph Smith and his finding of the gold tablets in Palmyra, New York and all kinds of other new divine revelation. So is Jesus Lord more than just belief over your life? Next question. Does, does your life reflect that Jesus is Lord? This is really where everything begins to change. Some of you say, yeah, I believe Jesus is Lord. Okay, does our life reflect that Christ is Lord over us? Is Jesus the ultimate treasure? in our life? Do we wake up every morning saying, Jesus, I love you. You are eternal. You are God. You are my savior. You are Lord over all, and I love you. Or do we just simply not submit to that and reach for our phone on the nightstand and say, okay, let's, let me check my email. I'm going to check my texts. I'm going to check my schedule for what I got to do today instead of just accepting and admitting that Jesus is God every day. He has to be more than God on just a Sunday. I, you wouldn't eat a huge meal at Crossroads on Sunday and then just expect to not eat for the rest of the week. Or you wouldn't plug in your cell phone on a Sunday afternoon, take it out, and just expect your phone to last for the rest of the week. Just like our relationship with Christ, we got to plug in every day. We, we eat our spiritual food, the word of God, every day. We commune with the Holy Spirit inside of us every day. If we're living in deliberate sin, persistent sin with no desire to change, is Jesus Lord? Does he get a say in where our, how our tongue is used? Does he get a say in where our money goes? We talked about it last week. We have buckets. But this bucket is yours, but this bucket is mine. It's not how it works with a king king gets all the buckets. Jesus 
wants all of us, not so he can be an evil, angry taskmaster who you're just a slave to, even though you are a slave to Christ. No, but he's your father who knows best for you, who wants to walk with you, so he'll glorify himself and use you in this life as well. So does Jesus get a control of those things? Does he determine our, our friend groups or where we go on Friday and Saturday nights? Does Jesus have a say over that? Or are we the God of our own life? Some of you may say, well, how do I, how do I submit? There's many different ways, and some can be practical and some can be very spiritual. Practical way to just submit to Jesus is, is through your priorities. Priorities in the morning, we talked about that. Reaching for a phone first thing in the morning, or is it reaching for my Bible, or is it setting aside time to just take a few moments to thank God for who he is and for what he's done? In worship, is it choosing to submit, say, I'm going to submit my mind to you, Lord. I'm going to put my mind on things above while I am in worship, so that way I can give you glory and I can thank you for who you are, instead of being distracted and thinking about you know, the, the tea time I got after church and where I'm going to lunch and I'm hanging out with boys or whatever, is Jesus submitted to as Lord? Does our life reflect that? Last question, do you tell others that Jesus is Lord? Do you tell others that Jesus is Lord? Verse six, John, we said, was the vehicle for delivering the good news about Jesus who was to come. Then Jesus, after he died and he was raised from the dead, he talks to his disciples and he gives them what's been known as the Great Commission. A lot of you are familiar with the Great Commission. And I'm going to read it really quickly to you. It's, it's in Matthew chapter 28. You don't have to turn there, but Jesus says in, in Matthew 28 verse 19, he says, go therefore, go, not if you go, kind of like give, not if you give, but go. Therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I heard it, I heard it put the other day that the Great Commission has often or has been treated as the great suggestion for far too long. And man, that hit me like that hit me hard like. Man, Jesus did not die and give me a great commission to just study theology all day. My Bible studies with fellow believers weren't meant to just talk about Calvinism the whole time or to talk about Jacob Arminius or to talk about if we need to be baptized to be saved. Like that's not what Jesus died for. Good things to talk about, sure. But what is actually consuming my time? What is it? Is it focus on who Christ is in my life and telling other people who are trapped with counterfeit gospels the truth about Jesus when we have the real biblical thing? Or is it really just to discuss theology? Is it to just discuss things of this world? Like, what is my actual mission? Jesus makes it very clear. There's a revealed will for your life in Scripture and my life as well. And it's to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. If we really believe that Jesus is Lord, then out of, that, out of that belief should be action. James talks about this. He says that our faith without works is dead. The ultimate work is declaring the gospel. The gospel that Jesus Christ came to this earth, God in flesh came to this earth, lived a perfect life, sinless life that we could never live, that he died on the cross paying the penalty, paying the debt that we owed, so that all who would repent and believe in him after he was raised from the dead would be saved. We believe in Jesus as Lord, not just as a good man or Jesus, yeah, he's God and I do my Sunday thing. No, Jesus is Lord overall. So if we really believe that Jesus is Lord, then out of that should flow a heart of love for the people around us. One of the greatest, the greatest ways that non-believers will engage with other believers and, and attempt to really dismantle their faith is they say like, well, if you really believed that Jesus was the only way to heaven and you really believed that people were gonna be set apart from God and punished in hell, then you just wouldn't be eating at Denny's after church on Sunday or going to Crossroads. You wouldn't be, 
you know, living like a heathen on the weekend and then in church with a hand raised on Sunday. No, there, there should be a difference. The world knows it, and they see it just as much as God sees it. So is Jesus Lord? As we just begin to reflect, and if the worship teams want to come up and just maybe they'll play something soft here, go into a time of just really to reflect on what we've read in John chapter 1. We've seen through the scripture that Jesus is eternal, that Jesus is Lord over all, that Jesus says himself that he is the only way to the Father. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Maybe you are here and there's never been this, there's never been a moment where you have bent your knee to Jesus as Lord. There hasn't been a moment in your life where you've said, Jesus, you are Lord over my life, not just on a Sunday, and I don't just believe in who you are. No, I believe that you are God in flesh, that I believe that you are the light of the world, and apart from you, there is no good thing in me. God, I'm a sinner, and I ask you to save me. The good news is, is that's the gospel message, that if you repent and believe in Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. And today, if some of you are thinking like, well, man, like, I don't know, I, I saw that Jesus is like this, like, he's like kind of perfect. So he's God and he's eternal and he's light and life. And I got all these questions about Jesus being Lord and weekend questions and who am I spending my time with? Who am I in a relationship with? What am I drinking? What am I doing? I don't think I could really maybe come to Christ right now. Maybe I need to get a little bit better before I decide to show up to Jesus' doorstep. And I want to suggest like you wouldn't bathe before you bathe or shower before you shower. Like, you don't go get clean. You don't get yourself clean before you get clean. No, you, you come to Jesus, and he makes you clean. The Holy Spirit fills you and washes you and renews you. And the Bible says that you go from being, crim you go from being stained and dirty to your sins being washed white as snow. Today, you can come to Jesus and believe in Jesus if you are sleeping with your boyfriend or you're sleeping with your girlfriend. You can come to Jesus today if you're confused about your sexuality. Maybe you're even, you are gay or you are lesbian. Maybe you've been thinking about transitioning and your sexuality is all confused. You can come to Jesus. You can come to Jesus if you've been addicted to drugs, you've tried every AA meeting in the world and you're an alcoholic. You can come to Jesus if you've been taking pills or you've been addicted to pornography, you have a foul mouth or you're greedy for money and you're selfish. You can come to Jesus today. But if Jesus is Lord, if, if you come to Jesus today and he actually is Lord, he's gonna put his finger on it and he's gonna call it out. He's gonna say, hey, this is sin. This is sin and this needs to be dealt with. But thanks be to God that he didn't just call it out. He didn't just say something about it, and he's not just going to say something about our sin. He's promised to fill us with the Holy Spirit. That when he ascended into heaven, he was going to send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit, who is God as well, that's a conversation for another day. The Holy Spirit is God, will literally fill us and make us a new man. The Bible says that we, were, we go from the old man to the new, that all things become a new creation in Christ. So if that's you today, that promise of being filled with the Holy Spirit to help you overcome weaknesses and areas of sin is for you who haven't bent the knee to Jesus. Maybe you've just been a believer. You've just said, well, I believe because, well, that's just like the good thing to do. Like everybody else kind of does. Like, I don't know, I guess God, like I believe in that he's real and my parents kind of went to church, and so did I. But maybe Jesus has never just been the love of your life. And maybe you've actually never felt love before. And today you need to come to a God who loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. And he's promised to never leave you or forsake you and to fill you with his presence. For the rest of us, maybe you've been saved for a really long time and you really do believe that Jesus is Lord. You do. But there's areas of your life where, man, Jesus just, and he just hasn't been Lord. He hasn't been Lord over maybe the relationships you've been engaged in, 
or he's been engaged in some of the actions you're partaking in on weekends, maybe money, Jesus hasn't been Lord, your mouth, he hasn't been Lord. I'm guilty of all these things. Jesus hasn't been Lord in a lot of areas in my life. And if you're honest with yourself and if you're honest with God, Jesus probably hasn't been Lord over a lot of areas of your life as well. The good news is that today Jesus isn't displeased with his people who are, actually, who are believers in him. There's a, he's, a, he's a loving and gracious father. It says that he's, 1 John also says that he's faithful and just to forgive all who will confess their sins to him. As we move into a time to just reflect on this, God is lovingly inviting you to repent for areas where maybe he hasn't been Lord, and he's lovingly inviting you to just deeper and more intimate fellowship with him. This happens through the Holy Spirit. Ask the Holy Spirit to fill you with more power to overcome some of these areas of weakness. Paul says in Ephesians, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And in the Greek, really what it translates to is be being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a continual action. We receive the Holy Spirit upon conversion. We learned that a couple weeks ago, but we know that there are more moments to be filled with him. And if you're a believer today, and there's areas where Jesus hasn't been Lord, right now is an opportunity to repent and give those areas of weakness over to the Holy Spirit. And if today you've never believed in Christ as Lord, that opportunity is available. You can come to the front and we'll pray with you. If you have no idea, the Bible makes it very clear. It's turn away from your sin and repent. Admit you're a sinner and believe that Jesus died for your sin, was raised from the dead, and he's Lord of your life. And if you need help or you want prayer for that, the church leaders are going to be here. I'm going to be here. If you're a believer and you want to come pray at this altar and say, Jesus, forgive me, for I have been sinning and I have not been submitting to you. Then that time is available as well. But let's just reflect on if Jesus is We hope you enjoyed today's message. If you did, make sure you like and share on social media to help spread God's word. If you'd like to learn more about The Bridge, or if you'd like to give, you can go to our website at thebridge129.org. Again, thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you next time.